Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Bob Wintermute, and you're listening to the New Books and Military History podcast for the New Books Network. One of the greatest pleasures for the hosts of New Books and Military History is discovering a book that reshapes our perspective of its given subject, the type of book that resets the dialogue of a topic that appears to have been worked out long ago by historians in the field. Implacable Foes, War in the Pacific, 1944. 1945, by Waldo Heinrichs and Mark Galicchio, is exactly that type of book. The history of the Pacific Theater in World War II has been the focus of an exhaustive historiography, beginning even as the war was still in progress nearly 80 years ago. It is fitting, then, that two of the masters in the field would come together to create a masterwork study of the war's last 20 months that is both encyclopedic in its scope and immensely approachable in execution. This episode of New Books in Military History, we are joined by Mark Galicchio, a former student of his co-author at Temple University and now professor of history at Villanova University. It is also worth noting that Implacable Foes was awarded the 2018 Bancroft Prize in American History and Diplomacy, one of the most prestigious awards recognizing excellence in the craft. Allowing Mark to take place alongside other prestigious masters is Alan Nevins, Samuel Morrison, C. Van Woodward, Arthur Schlesinger, Jill Lepore, and John Dower. It's a great pleasure to introduce you, Mark. Thank you very much, Bob. I should note by way of some small disclosure that we both share an intellectual legacy in that we both worked at Temple University, albeit at different times, with Richard Immerman and Russell Wigley. At risk of sounding and maybe a bit self-aware, I'd like to ask that, you know, besides the all obvious connection with Waldo Heinrichs, how do you think your experience at Temple helped shape this book? That's a really good question and an important one. Um, Russell Wigley, um, a lot of his later writings had, the, the, his theme was the way in which modern warfare had reached a point where it no longer was capable of producing results that were uh, affordable to the countries engaged in them. Um, and that they sort of, in that sense, the war had, was outliving its usefulness in that it could not produce victory at acceptable costs. And I think that's very much uh, one of the themes that develops in this book, uh, when you look at the difficulty that the United States had uh, in completing the campaign against Japan after having defeated Germany, of course, with considerable aid from the Russians to begin with, but without the atomic bombs, our conclusion is it was going to be extremely difficult for the United States to successfully invade Japan and produce um, victory defined as unconditional surrender and a cost that Americans would find acceptable. 
And so in that sense, I think we were continuing one of the sort of Russ Wigley's major themes or that he developed during his career. And actually another one that related to that was uh, early in his career, uh, Russ had written about the American struggle to reconcile uh, the maintenance of a military establishment with Republican institutions. And, and of course, he wrote this uh, collection of uh, essays, really, uh, Towards an American Army. It's one of the first books. And, and, and that's something um, that we encountered in this book, that is the struggle of the United States to sort of field an army and keep it in the field, and at the same time, um, manage all the domestic issues, political issues involved in supplying that army, providing the manpower necessary for it. Um, and you can see in this the system that we talk about um, that uh, General Marshall developed this I idea of um, where troops would be demobilized on the basis of points. Mm -hmm. um, you see an attempt to sort of deal with this question of how long can you ask uh, citizen soldiers to remain in uniform and, and how does the United States sort of reconcile its institutions with uh, maintaining uh, an army in wartime and the, the United States actually, I mean, you can see the problems they had in World War II with the point system. You can see variations on that after World War II in the Korean War, right? This sort of uh, troop rotation system. And then, of course, in Vietnam War, the idea that soldiers would only um, be expected to be in Vietnam in the war zone for 11 months, I think it was, or 13. I, I always sort of get, I can't remember that. But it, but this idea then that, you know, you, you place limits in, on what the uh, expectations are for citizen soldiers, they are not always consistent with combat efficiency. And really could, I mean, our argument is that, that of course, this demobilization uh, process um, actually hurt the combat effectiveness of those very units that w were going to be expected to invade Japan. Uh, but that was to satisfy public opinion, uh, of course, at home. So those, I think, are these two themes that uh, Russell Wigley had developed in his long career. Uh, those are just two of them, but those are two that I think we kept coming back to in this book. Sure. Yeah, sure. Well, I also want to expect, with the greatest respect, mind you, yeah. how much of this book in a structure came from each of you, that being okay. yourself and Waldo Heinrichs? I mean, I wish I could ask the question of Waldo himself, but I understand he's not well. Yeah. Um, well, I think the, the I mean, the, the idea for the book was Waldo's, and, and he began more than a decade before I joined him and say, I think I was around 2014, he had been working on this in retirement. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think, um, and I, I, you're familiar with this 
process, the, the more you get involved in something, the larger it grows. And oh, yeah. there were a lot of questions uh, that started presenting themselves that I, I, I don't think he had considered before, but that's pretty standard in, in doing research. And so I think the portion of the book that deals with the campaigns right up to Okinawa I think it grew larger than he expected because he thought it was especially important to sort of, when people talk about the war, I think a lot, there's a lot of focus on those crucial few days in August where they dropped the atomic bomb and that's the end of the war. But, you know, Walter thought it was extremely important for people to understand what the American military experience had been in the Pacific mm-hmm for the year and a half preceding that, because that created the experience they had created the conditions and circumstances, you know, for the military that they were going to have to sort of the setting in which they were going to launch this invasion of Japan. And, and uh, Waldo has always been very, in his scholarship, very concerned about uh, logistics. Mm -hmm. And and understanding um, how um, you know the the very sort of basic questions about how troops get to where they're supposed to go and with the equipment that they need and what it what is take what it takes to supply them and keep them uh, you know in uh, as an effective combat force and and. The reality is those challenges were enormous in the Pacific. And and so he spent uh, quite a lot of time sort of developing that story, which is, is really crucial to understanding the situation the United States found itself in <laughs> at the end of the war. So that, I think, that part sort of grew. And the, his expectation was that there would there might be a chapter then on the domestic politics of the the home front after the defeat of Germany. And that section grew, oh, yes. <laughs> which is which yeah. is the part that, that I contributed. Um, again, I had sort of Waldo's prospectus and some of his questions to guide me, but I, I was, um, and I had worked, I had written about a little bit about the end of the war before, and I, but there were just whole areas that I had not really explored before. And through research, I mean, sort of, I, I think that really, you know, changed my perception of what was taking place. And, and particularly on the domestic front. And, you know, we talk a lot about the concerns that people had about the health of the economy right mm-hmm. at the end of the war. Uh, but there were also the growing demands to bring soldiers home, get them out of service uh, as quickly as possible, uh, which was something, uh, one of the surprises I think we had was the sort of virulence of the criticism directed at the army mm-hmm. after um, Germany's defeat. And and Waldo had speculated about that in his in his perspectives, and then I just found <laughs> a, scathing. Yeah, really yeah, is. tremendous. I mean, to the point where, as I, I point out, that uh, George Marshall sort of let it be known he was just thinking of retiring. He was mm-hmm. just 
exhausted with having to sort of beat back these criticisms. And every time he met with a congressional committee, Mm -hmm. they leaked information and he let it be known, as I explained, to a sort of a Washington insider that maybe he was done. Yeah. Well, you really get the sense, I think, and in, in jumping ahead to that, yeah. that part of the book, we're talking about Congress and its oversight role at the end of the war. You really get the sense that you have not only Republican politicians, petitions, but also conservative Democrats yeah. who have been, they've been compelled to keep quiet about FDR's leadership for so many years. Yeah. And now's their chance to finally stand up and, and get their pound of flesh. Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. And, and of course, during... Wartime, Congress yields tends to yield to the chief mm-hmm. e- executive, uh, the commander in chief. Um, but they get tired of that. Oh yeah, <laughs> and, and and one of I guess the other surprises, and and I mean we did have a lot of them in this book, was the extent to which Americans felt that the war was really over when Germany surrendered, and that just sort of kind of lifted uh, the restraints on people in Congress to begin uh, sort of, you say, kind of getting back for all these years of having to silence themselves. Mm-hmm. Now they had a chance. And, and of course, Roosevelt by that time was gone. Right. And um, yeah, there, there was a, uh, not a vacuum, but certainly that, that strong leadership was gone as Truman tried to feel his way through. Yeah, and again, jumping ahead, I mean, it seems like it's almost in that response, like the real war is done now, let's mop this up. Yeah. Germany's out, now we finish Japan. It's almost as if, you know, that, that really is speaking towards, how did one, does one say it, an incipient racism that existed in American perspectives of Japan as a worthy foe after beating Germany. Well, I, yes, I think I think the Germany was always perceived as a greater threat. But I mean, the interesting thing is, what I see as an interesting wrinkle on that is that we, uh, you mentioned John Dower earlier. Mm-hmm. Of course, John Dower is this sort of path breaking book on on uh, sort of race and in mm-hmm. racism in World War Two would would lead you to think that what Americans really wanted to do was exact revenge. Mm-hmm. Um, from from Japan now that they were beaten back almost to the home islands and really let them have it. But surprisingly, a lot of people were willing to say, you know... They're not worth it. Yeah, yeah, we're done, right? Yeah. And it's not worth the cost. I mean, that was the other thing. It was clear that an invasion was going to be extremely costly. Mm-hmm. And, and people thought, yeah, it's not, it's not worth it at this point. Um, and uh, uh, so maybe we can change our definition of what constitutes victory, mm-hmm. something less than unconditional surrender. Maybe they can keep the emperor. That, that was an increasingly sort of popular idea. I wouldn't say it was the dominant idea, mm-hmm. but it was permissible for civilians to talk that way. Sure. Uh, Republicans in Congress had to be a little more circumspect because they had to worry about appeasement. Mm-hmm. So they would call regularly for clarification of unconditional surrender. But what they really meant was modification of unconditional surrender, mm-hmm. starting with the emperor. Let them keep the emperor. And, uh, but, they, but they wouldn't say, 
modification. They would just say <laughs> clarification because they didn't want to be accused of being appeasers. We'll let the president take the Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. They, they were going to let the, the buck stop with Harry uh, <laughs> on that. Uh, and he was not willing to. <laughs> no. He didn't want to handle that hot potato. Yeah. yeah. Stepping back to the book, the sure. opening of the book, you know, the tone is is set in the first pages of the introduction, you know, and it, it may come as a surprise to many readers who have come to the Pacific Theater with this, you know, through this literary path that's very Amerocentric, very validationalist, yeah. you know, you state, and this is restating what you said in the introduction, despite its great success since 1942, the United States was not on a path towards a sure victory. In mid 1945, uh, you know there is this technical calculus—that's the atomic bomb—and the issue of the tacit compliance of the emperor. You do note that this was also due to a series of unavoidable constraints. What were these constraints? Well, it—I it, mean, it just starts with geography and distance. And one of the my favorite images in the book is this map that was produced by, I guess, the engineers in the Southwest Pacific, which superimposes a map of the United States on the Southwest Pacific Theater. And the United States does not cover the whole theater. I mean, that gives you an idea. And this is already three thousand miles from the United States, and that's the area. Uh, there are, we mentioned that there were um, ships that would be at sea for days, you know, in one case, two weeks without seeing land. Yeah. I mean, and and uh, just the vastness of the theater. The environment, the, the, the environment was inhospitable. At both extremes. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Right, right. Of course, in the north, the sort of frigid and Aleutian Islands, but then, then in the South Pacific, the absence of any major port facilities, uh, once you got past, uh, moved up from Australia um, and uh, basically moved west of Hawaii. And, and that, that meant building those facilities and bringing all the equipment plus the men needed to build it, mm-hmm. tying up shipping that way to build the infrastructure that would make it possible for this really impressive war machine uh, to move forward every time. Now, you add to that, I mean, the factor of distance, it took three times as long for a ship to make the circuit in the Pacific as it did in the Atlantic, going sort of from the East Coast of the United States to Europe. So that means that you need you know, three times as many ships if you're going to be sending mm-hmm. material out there, which, of course, becomes a problem. Shipping becomes a problem mm-hmm. towards the end of the war. So the, these logistical obstacles had to be overcome, the environment. Um, and then, of course, you know, which is pretty obvious, but still significant, is the farther you get away from the United States, the closer you get to Japan, yeah. and the Japanese have these sort of interior lines. And yeah. I, I like the way you, you contextualize yeah. that. Yeah. You know, you compare it with the war in Europe, and, you know, of course, as the closer the Allies get to Germany, the greater the collapse. Yeah. You know, whereas it's the exact obverse happening in the Pacific. And I don't think a lot of people consider that. Yeah, and that's, that's really the case. And, of course, the... You know the factor of the Japanese themselves. Uh, um, I point out that that um, the Germans were surrendering. I mean, all through the war, but especially near the end, in the hundreds of thousands, uh, 
there is, and this statistic comes from uh, Richard Frank, uh, mm-hmm. who's another important uh, major historian of the Pacific the history War. of Okinawa. Yeah, yeah, uh, Guadalcanal, and then and, and then, then and, yeah, the uh, final uh, use of the atomic bomb and everything, and and. Uh, uh, you know, he points out there was no organized Japanese surrender until the emperor ordered his troops to lay down their arms after the two atomic bombs. I mean, there would be occasional sort of random people surrendering, coming out of the jungles or whatever. But there was nothing comparable to what took place in Europe. Uh, I seem to recall that there was a great celebration that they managed to capture over 100 Japanese prisoners at the end of Okinawa. Yeah. That had never happened before. Right, exactly, exactly. Um, and, and even that was not the sort of formal surrender where somebody, you know, comes out and they mm-hmm. agree to lay down. They, these are people who were just, you know, found, they're shell-shocked, or they're, you know, they're pulled out of, uh, you know, some cave where they've been hiding or, or, or something. Yeah, so it's a very different experience, and it's it's one that, impressed itself on the minds of Americans, made it very clear to them that the the fight for the home islands of Japan was going to be long and bloody. I mean, that's the impression that everybody had. Yeah, yeah. How did the demands of the home front then affect, or, or rather had the potential to affect, the conduct of the war after 1944? And again, we've, lead, we've led into this. Yeah. So let's, let's... Well... Part of it has to do with the demand to um, bring the boys home mm-hmm. uh, with the idea that the war in Europe is the main theater of operation. And when Germany surrenders, that's that demands increase, um, which also meant troops would be coming out of the Pacific theater as well, because MacArthur insisted that his soldiers be treated the same. So mm-hmm. uh, so that meant you were going to have to pull troops out of the Pacific who had combat experience. These right. are what Marshall referred to as the Army's first team. Right. Right. And and uh, so, so the demands for the return of people, but also a desire to sort of lift the wartime restrictions on the economy. Um, there was uh, a constant pressure to begin economic reconversion, which the military resisted tooth and nail. But those people who had been put in charge of sort of mobilization of the economy for war were uh, worried that unless reconversion began, you know, by summer of 1945, the United States would not be in a position to maintain any kind of economic prosperity once the war ended and millions of soldiers came home. Mm-hmm. Something had to be done to begin to transform the economy from one geared towards producing war materials to one that would be able to produce for the domestic market. Mm-hmm. And here you find union leaders, business leaders, their representatives in Congress, the civilian war mobilizers, all of them able to agree on this, that that reconversion had to begin or else there was good, the, the country would be facing economic calamity. 
And people began to ask, they said, what, what are we fighting this war for? Certainly it's to uh, kind of maintain for Americans the quality of life that they've come to expect. And, mm-hmm. and, and I think hovering over them was the, the ghost of the Depression and, right. and, and a, a return to massive unemployment. Um, you know, the people who were adamantly opposed to beginning reconversion uh, uh, under Secretary of War Robert Patterson mm-hmm. and uh, really Henry Stimson as well, they, they believed that any sign of any attempt to sort of begin reconversion to satisfy the demands of the domestic economy would be a sign of a kind of weakening commitment to the war. Right. And we're afraid that that would mushroom and really sort of undermine the American effort at a moment when it really, they needed to sort of step it up, right, if they were going to invade Japan. So they were worried about that effect on morale, Patterson believed strongly that they had created this system for demobilization, this point system that had been constructed with consultation with soldiers themselves. Mm -hmm. Sort of, um, you know, they treated the soldiers like a political constituency. They polled them and... and, Now that that's never happened. Yeah, right, right, yeah. (laughs) They, you know, they polled them and, and they sort of got their input on what's the the fairest way to begin to uh, discharge soldiers from military service. And uh, Patterson was absolutely resolute. He was not going to change that. Mm-hmm. He wouldn't break faith with the soldiers, he said. Now, the, the thing is, you know, I don't think... I mean, everybody agrees Patterson was a very sort of devoted public servant, mm-hmm. honorable person. And, but I don't think he was ever in a position of being thrown out of work in the 1930s and selling pencils on the street or something. You know, I mean, he no. he he, I, he didn't I mean, he had been a corporate lawyer, you know, and he, he didn't identify with the fears that a lot of war workers had that suddenly they were going to show up for work one day and the plant would be closed because the orders had been canceled. Mm-hmm. And then they were going to have to scramble to find work. And, and he, uh, you know, he didn't, I think, couldn't identify with that point of view. He just saw it as weakness on their part. Yeah, and some of these factory owners were already signaling it was going to be returned to business as it was before. Yeah, yeah, there was actually, an, and um, yeah, there was there was certainly a desire among um, conservative Republicans to uh, sort of take advantage of the success that business had had in producing for the war and say, okay, now we're business is back in effect. You know, we don't need those new deal like regulations. And, and they in particular targeted the office of price administration, which was sort of the most new deal like agency created during the war and which, which kind of reached down to the street level. Yeah. Um, and, um, and, Very much like the old NRA. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And and that um, 
was a target, a chief target for them. They said, well, you know, the sooner we get the war over with, mm-hmm. <laughs> the sooner we could do away with the OPA and uh, the world would be a better place for it. And, and, and they tried to, to eliminate it even in, in June of uh, 1945. I think it was Robert Taft who was proposing mm-hmm. that. Um, and, and he said, look, the war is basically over. Yeah, and and of course, you know, June nineteen forty five. They're still waiting to see what happens in Okinawa. Yeah, they, 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 Okinawa had not um, been wrapped up yet. Yeah, so, but yet the war is over. Yeah, right. Yeah, I recall taking back to Temple. Yeah, back there. I recall that the Russell Wigley soundly dismissed this historical convention that the Pacific War was this undersupported, neglected. You know, redheaded stepchild. Type oh, right. Of yes, yes. Yeah. You know, how true is the perception that the combined commands of the Pacific, you know, MacArthur in the Southwest Pacific, Nimitz in the Central Pacific, Stillwell in, in China, Burma, India, were these orphans when yeah. it came to manpower? Well, certainly that was MacArthur's view. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I think it's more accurate. As it relates to Stillwell, in part just because it was so difficult to get supplies across the hump into China, and the Americans were never really going to send a expeditionary force to to China, um, and and so he was in the, he was frustrated clearly, um, mm-hmm. and and on a pretty thin diet um, in terms of of material. Uh, we make the point that really. The Navy and the Army had what it needed, and including the Marines, up to early 1944, and it had enough to really then go on the offensive, right? It, the fast carriers mm-hmm. uh, become available, and, and they learn how to sort of use them and kind of begin taking these long leaps ahead. And that um, at that point, they were not going to receive additional troops until the war in Europe was over. So so they had what they needed as of January 1944 to begin moving. Now, of course, farther along and in early 1945, that was a time when I think more manpower certainly would have been helpful. Uh, but of course, there was a manpower crisis in in, in Europe. Europe as well, right? And 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 a shipping crisis as well. And so that's where I think it really begins to sort of take hold and pinch. Um, but that's a matter of you know a particular moment in time. Yeah, yeah. You know? And having to sort of you know kind of um, having these all this all out land campaign in Europe to finish the war, um, right? And that's so. I mean, I think we. Certainly agree with uh, Wigley's uh, depiction there. Uh, actually, an interesting item worth noting is that Waldo uh, was in one of the two divisions that was slated to go to the Pacific. He was in the 86th Infantry. Oh, my. Okay. And as a result of the manpower shortage created by the Ardennes Offensive, he was, I mean, they were in San Diego. They were shipped all the way across the country and sent to Europe. And then he wound up in the Danube Valley at the end of the war. Oh my. Uh, at which point he became the first division, part of the first division to be sent home 
which was then going to be, after furlough, sent to the Pacific. And he talked, I mean, we talked about this, and he, he said he, um, I guess, one day wound up as sort of the senior non-commissioned officer in his company because the other guys had 86 points and they were gone. They yeah. just, you know, they hopped on a truck and they left and there he was, you know. <laughs> um, and then they, they came home and he got his furlough and then he um, regrouped, um, I wanted to say it was in Oklahoma, Fort Sill, I think. Okay. And they went by train to San Francisco. Nice three-day excursion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And at that point, the atomic bomb was dropped, and they figured, oh, well, we're not going to have to leave. And the next thing they saw was the Golden Gate Bridge receding behind them. They were headed out. Um, Back to the mob. Yeah, yeah. Well, they were going to, they thought they were headed for the occupation of Japan. They wound up in the Philippines uh, oh, at wow. that point. And, you know, but the war was over then. But that was, they were the first division that was going to be part of, um, we talk about demobilization, but there's also redeployment. Right. And, and that was, so his division would be one of the follow-on forces for the second stage of the, the core in that. Yeah. 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 Uh, Tokyo Plain. Well, it's well established that the drive across the Pacific after 1942 harried the Japanese along two axes. You know, again, yeah. MacArthur's advance from the south, Nimitz coming across the Central Pacific. And again, many people approach the Pacific War. They see this as a great coordinated effort, some kind of vast, you know, global pincher movement. Mm-hmm. Flying the ointment is that the two men did not get along, did they? No. no. And and uh, things really soured um, uh, during Okinawa when... MacArthur, journalists would come by and MacArthur would say, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it the way Nimitz was, you know, but do it. And, and that word got back to Nimitz. And at that point, uh, I mean, I think he had cooperated as best he could. I mean, there were clearly the Navy and the Army had different approaches that were difficult to, to reconcile, uh, but uh, Nimitz had been pretty cooperative, and but it, it, I think uh, D. Clayton James, MacArthur's biography says, uh, biographer says at that point, you know, they, it's off. yeah, yeah, this is like the low point in their relationship. Yeah. I, I think this is, um, you know, we treat this as a case of, you know, life gives you lemons, you make lemonade. They, <laughs> they, the advantage of having this two pronged approach, which of course sort of violates all these military axioms Mm. and divided command and and all the rest um, is that at least General Marshall was able to tolerate it because it meant that there was, there was constant action and movement Mm -hmm. along one axis or the other, which would help keep the war front and center Mm -hmm. in the minds of the American public and give them a sense of progress, of moving along this yardstick, getting closer to the end. And in, and in that sense, uh, plus it did keep the Japanese off balance, too. Sure. And, yeah. and, uh, and so for those reasons, it seemed tolerable, given, again, that Marshall was, 
extremely concerned with American public opinion and morale. And, and of course, anybody who's taken a class with Russell Wigley knows <laughs> that Marshall's famous uh, axiom that a democracy cannot fight a seven years war. Yeah. Which he did, in fact, say and 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 believe, and and he he believed he was seeing evidence of that, and it was important to sort of keep the public uh, focused on the war, enthusiastic, willing to make a commitment, and by showing progress uh, and activity, um, he could do that. Well, it, it certainly know. counters the the public relations machine that MacArthur has built. During the time as well, yeah. you know, to show that the Navy is its own independent actor. MacArthur is is the master of the Southwest Pacific, yeah. the Philippines, whatever. Um, but the problems they have, they go back even earlier too. I mean, there's this this question of Formosa. What's going to happen? Yes, there uh, that almost derails the drive across the Pacific. Yeah, and and there was evidence that even though the Navy finally came around and said. Um, Okay, you know, straight to the Philippines, and that becomes the base for launching the invasion of Japan. There's some evidence that they just wouldn't let that idea die, <laughs> and you know the the army planners um, refer to it as the sort of um, muddling around the China Sea idea, you know, yeah. that the, that the Navy had all the time, and it just it would keep popping back up in in plans and and particularly towards the uh, end of the summer of 1945 when the idea of invasion for a lot of reasons that we cite um, seems less acceptable less viable um, the idea of siege looms larger and that would be a Navy show, right? The Navy and the Air Force. And, uh, I mean, that's something that uh, MacArthur certainly does not want. accept and want. And, but neither did George Marshall. And this, they were of two minds because Marshall feared that a siege would ultimately prolong the war mm -hmm. and that um, the American public would grow tired of the sacrifices required, although they would certainly be less from an invasion, nevertheless, the nation would still remain on a war footing. And he was afraid that if the war became drawn out, uh, the American public would accept and the American government would accept a negotiated settlement with the Japanese. Mm -hmm. And that, that, so for him, siege equaled uh, abandonment of unconditional surrender. Okay. And, and the Navy, I mean, me, one of the striking things about having done this book, and, and of course, you know, the Navy, they felt if once they defeated the Japanese Navy, it was no longer, Japan was no longer a threat to the United States. And in effect, the war was over. Mm -hmm. They had never really been enthusiastic about the invasion. Um, and, uh, you see that in Ernest King's comments. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. In, in, in the war. But <laughs> the amazing thing to me is that in some naval publications in which our book was reviewed, that view still persists. Oh, yeah. 
that, that, I mean, you know, you talk about the persistence of institutional memory. <laughs> there are you know, people like, you know, who were sort of Naval Institute proceedings or something saying, well, the, the, the Japanese were already defeated. So, so right, there were all these problems, these worries about economic reconversion and problems with redeployment and demobilization, but that didn't matter because the Japanese were already defeated. Mm-hmm. And that was the Navy's view. <laughs> I, I think we provide ample evidence that that wasn't the Japanese view. Yeah, absolutely right. <laughs> and and I think it's the historian uh, Michael Perlman who had this wonderfully sharp observation. You know, because Admiral Leahy was one of the the, the president's representative on the Joint Chiefs, and he held to this view, being a good Navy man, that the Japanese were defeated. And 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 Perlman says, well. You know, it's really a shame that Admiral Leahy couldn't surrender on behalf of the Japanese, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, but but that is, I mean, that's what's, that, talk about surprises, that view persists. Uh, and you can see it in some of these um, naval sort of oriented publications that I've sure. had. And, and uh um, yeah, I know the Naval Institute Press publishes quite a bit on on the, the surrender and yeah, the, yeah. the abortive plans for the invasion. I'm thinking of DMG yeah. and Greco's. Yeah, 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 I, yeah. That's a that's a terrific uh, book. I mean, he yeah. really. I mean, we've we've corresponded about this, and and I think we're pretty much on the same page in terms of what the Americans were in for mm-hmm. um, before the atomic bombs were dropped. Sure, uh, but but. Uh, but you know, people who really closely identify, I mean, with the Navy, um, continue to hold this view. It seems it's like. all Mahanian, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. It's and uh, it's an eye-opening um, development. But um, sure. Well, let's go back to the ground force. Yeah, you know, sure. and I, I, what I like also about political foes is you give the army its just due in the Pacific campaign. I don't need to to belabor our, our listeners or anyone else with the idea that, you know, for many of us, the Pacific War is about Marines storming the beaches of Tarawa, Peleliu, Iwo Jima. How do the two ground-based branches, that would be the Army and the Marine Corps, compare to each other in your estimation through, through the work on this? Does the Army, has the Army been unfairly treated? I hope you're not going to ask me to rate one over the other. I would not I, ask you to make I, that rate. I, I, because I refuse. But uh, I would say, uh, how much of their portrayal is connected to public opinion and post-war publicity versus reality? Uh, certainly, the Marine Corps received more attention at the time. I, I uh, had a neighbor living down the street who was in the army and. He said in the, in the Pacific, and he said their view was that a that a uh, any given uh, Marine um, you know squad consisted of uh, twelve riflemen and a cameraman, you know? <laughs> um, and and that the idea that of course that they were very good at publicizing their uh, exploits. But, I mean, one of the things we point out, and this was, you know, Waldo's observation, uh, you know, the, you know, that memorable photograph of the flag raising at, at Iwo Jima mm-hmm. 
that's a celebration of the Marine and the Marine Corps, right. the enlisted men. And MacArthur never, never would have allowed, you know, the, the um, part of the reason that the American people don't know uh, during the war and, and after a lot about what the army is doing is because they only know what MacArthur wanted them to know. And, and Waldo observed it was in when MacArthur talks about the war, it's like sort of some 19th century or 18th century general saying, I moved my troops here. I mean, yeah. it is, it is this sort of, you know, what they used to say about Theodore Roosevelt, um, his memoirs, you know, it's sort of alone in the Pacific, you know, uh, <laughs> Douglas MacArthur. Um, and, and of course he, right when, um, Robert Eichelberger gets some notoriety from um, defeating Japanese at at uh, Puna, mm-hmm. and and all of a sudden Eichelberger appears in Time magazine and some other. And MacArthur sends him back to Australia to train troops, yeah, and, and learn his lesson. Don't uh, you know? Don't Only out one of command in charge of this army. Yeah, 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 and. And so I think for that reason, the American people were more aware of what the Marines were doing. And of course, they had been training. This was their war. They were training for this conflict sure. in the Pacific. And it's a difference between, you know, small island assaults yeah. and yes. a major campaign like the Philippines. Yeah, and New, and New Guinea. And and the interesting thing, of course, was, I mean, MacArthur was always, was not shy about sort of letting criticisms, you know, filter back. So that he would be the person chosen to lead the invasion of Japan. And he, you know, he pointed out that the modern commander <laughs> minimizes casualties um, and by using the indirect approach. And, of course, he was sort of leapfrogging along the coast of New Guinea, which you could do. But when he got into the Philippines, it became a more conventional campaign and was you know he he needed to conquer and hold territory and at that point his casualties not only do his casualties yeah. increase but civilian casualties yeah you know, absolutely catastrophic yeah in manila yeah and you know he's got no shortage of subordinate commanders who he can sack yeah at the drop of a hat i mean it's just amazing to, for me, as a an observer, as a historian, an observer, mm-hmm. to see how the legend of MacArthur persists in the face of all this. Yeah, yeah. Well, he was, I mean, he had charisma and strong support, particularly in the Republican Party at home in the press, mm-hmm. uh, and therefore had to sort of be treated with kid gloves and... Uh, yeah, he he was a a master at public relations, um, and um, uh, that accounts uh, for a lot of that. I mean, he he was not certainly without ability, um, but um, but I I think he is overrated, um, and I think that's both of our. Conclusions and and particularly um, 
the campaigns that he fought in the Philippines, um, they were putting his army in a position where it might not be ready to participate in the invasion, that the divisions were getting so depleted from trying to drive the Japanese out of all the islands. and And in part, he needed to do that because Manila couldn't serve all of the troops that were going to be used for the invasion, and they needed to be able to to uh, um, stage them right all in, across the all line. across that yeah and and uh, and take advantage of other sort of lesser ports, but areas that were maybe not um, had not suffered that level of destruction right but to do that of course meant i mean MacArthur referred to it as mopping up which is something the soldiers hated a term they you hated. still had an entire japanese yeah army yeah and lose on right it's not yeah. a matter of mopping up it's, yeah yeah it's a frontal assault right right and and it was uh, extremely costly in terms i mean it kept soldiers in the line fighting in constant contact with the enemy for weeks, and plus the uh, you know environment was such that they had uh, extremely high levels of um, casualties due to sort of non-battle combat fatigue, yeah. uh, battle exhaustion, whatever you want to call it. But then also heat disease. exhaustion, disease. Yeah, yeah. Sure. So and and so that was a, a, a serious problem mm-hmm. that um, was developing right at the end of the war. Um, yeah. Yeah. What was MacArthur's proposal for ending the war? How does he come down? Was he in favor of well? It depends or... when you. It depends when you ask him. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. The the sort of earlier I was talking about how we, you know, I got involved with with this, and I was actually working on a project on unconditional surrender mm-hmm. and the the sort of life of that issue both as a policy during the war and then as it becomes a controversy after the war. And, uh, and of course, you know, MacArthur was in favor of unconditional surrender. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and certainly in favor of invasion, he was greatly concerned that uh, if the timetable for invasion was changed, as it looked like it might be at the end of the war, um, that that he would lose control of the invasion. I mean, he this was going to be the last great campaign, and he was going to be the field marshal for it. So he was in favor of invasion because he, in part, he was going to be the the person in charge. So long as it was him and not some yeah. start from yeah. the European theater. Yeah, exactly. And and uh, and you know there were these sort of well-known generals from the European theater who were, including Patton, who were chomping at the bit to sort of get to the Pacific. And MacArthur said, well, you know, I'm not sure we need these people and, and, yeah. and so on. But but um, after the war, it's really the first sort of, this is part of the thesis of my project I'm working on now, the first revisionists, the first atomic bomb revisionists are actually sort of conservatives. And and MacArthur, particularly after things start falling apart in Asia, 
MacArthur is one of those people who said, well, we didn't need to hit the Japanese with atomic bomb. The, the Japanese were ready to surrender mm-hmm. and we needed the emperor anyway and so on. So he, he sort of, once the war's over, he changes. And he could say this being the Supreme Commander yeah. from Allied Forces Pacific, you know, yeah. and yeah. he's occupying what's virtually the Imperial Palace right, in Tokyo. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And and so, yeah, so he kind of shifted gears and, and among other things, he said, well, I, I don't know why we made a deal with Russia to come into the war because we don't need him. And in fact, at the time when he was told right after Yalta that the Russians were coming in, he thought that was a splendid idea. Sure. You know? um, Let them soak up the... Yeah, the yeah. Idea. Well, you know, Iwo Jima and Okinawa, they, they stand out as these Gulf hosts of the drive across yeah. the Pacific for many, you know, representing you know, this preponderant American power, this this massive steamroller mm-hmm. driving towards Japan and victory. Yet, I would argue, and you certainly argue, that these were Pyrrhic victories at best for the United States. How significant and how seriously was the Japanese resistance, including the use of kamikaze mm-hmm. aircraft and, and later would be small boats, how how significant was how serious was this resistance taken by the Roosevelt slash Truman administration and the general public? Oh, uh, very very seriously, and and uh, people, was the public really aware of the extent of this? Oh conflict? yes, and in yeah. fact, you begin particularly with Okinawa, which then I mean I you can see letters to congressmen, and and I went through the. Files of uh, various journalists, uh, people who were radio commentators. I think Martin Nagronsky and and others. You know, and and they're getting. And you see in the newspapers these articles are people. Like, I think one of the ones we quote is a woman who says, "Why is everything in the Pacific so bloody? It's bloody Tarawa. It's bloody Iwo Jima. It's bloody Okinawa. You know, we isn't there some way we can?" you know, win this war without having to throw our young men into these furnaces of, of uh, you know, Jap- where they just get, you know, consumed by Japanese resistance. And, 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 and there was, I think, a tremendous amount of concern yeah. that um, the closer they got to Japan, the costlier it was getting. And, and that was certainly true in Okinawa. Yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, there's all sorts of, I mean, the press journalists begin to sort of question General Buckner's sort of three yards in a cloud of dust approach, you know, this sort of, yeah. uh, um, you know, head on a kind of, it, it does seem to resemble more of a sort of World War One right. style campaign um, than uh, complete with the rain and everything else mm-hmm. than, than it does this sort of, uh, campaigns where you're taking advantage of American technological prowess and mobility provided by command of the sea and everything else. And, and it's just this hard slog. And I think people quite understandably question whether it's necessary. I mean, isn't there some better way to do this? And when you add to that the uh, devastating kamikaze attacks, um, uh, it's it's really a pretty horrific picture. Uh, no way out. Yeah, we're locked yeah. in this life or death struggle. It's yeah. no way out. Yeah. 
Uh, and, and of course, I mean, that's Truman's concern um, that invasion of the home islands is, is going to be that on a larger scale. Could but he, The question I would have is, could he have survived either alternative in the absence of the atomic bomb? Would he politically have survived a, let's say, successful but extremely attritive invasion? Or could he have survived approaching the Japanese offering terms or being willing to talk about terms? Politically, I mean. Yeah, yeah, no, I understand. I um, I think he would have managed to deflect criticism if he accepted a negotiated surrender. Mm-hmm. Given the changing mood back home, plus th- that the opposition party was basically pushing for some sort of negotiated surrender. So he he wouldn't have to worry about criticism from the Republicans. Mm-hmm. He had most of the sort of military, civilian military advisors in the administration in favor of some kind of negotiated surrender. And I think if the war ended and the emperor was on the throne and you could get all the Japanese troops out of the mainland of Asia. Well, they've given up Korea. Well, that's, you know, see, that's the thing. And of course, that's what, what, what Truman's concern. And I mean, we have considerable evidence now to suggest that, look, he didn't think Hirohito was any less guilty than Hitler Mm -hmm. and Mussolini. Right. And, and to him to make a deal with the emperor was to make a bargain with the devil and to leave the way open for a possible resurgence of Japanese militarism at some point. Yeah, he, he in many ways, I mean, I think people forget or overlook that he is still very much a Wilsonian in terms of outlook of yeah. America's morality abroad. Yeah. Making that kind of deal was would just been antithetical to him. Right, and, and he just didn't, um, and it would have seemed like, all those lives that what it had taken to get to that point had been squandered. Uh, you know, and he was reluctant to compromise e- even after the second bomb was dropped at Nagasaki and he meets with these two uh, senators individually um, and uh, and he tells them basically the same thing that he, he thinks Hirohito is uh, a real big part of the problem in Japan. And, and uh, you know, a lot of people in the military are telling him, are you going to need Hirohito to ensure the surrender of Japanese troops? But he's still reluctant to make that compromise. Um, and in that sense, he, he had a better understanding. I mean, Hirohito wasn't Hitler. He wasn't Mussolini. But he had a better understanding of what the emperor's role had been. Sure. Then did this, the people who considered themselves experts on the subject, mm-hmm. including Joseph Grew, Henry Stimson. Uh, you know, Grew had been ambassador to Japan for 10 years. Henry Stimson, who had been to Japan and was urging Truman to compromise on the emperor. Herbert Hoover, who had met with Truman and, and said, look, don't listen to this sort of small minority of the public that wants revenge. 
um, the emperor is just a figurehead. Um, well, if you read Herbert Bix's biography, which is based on a lot of other sort of Japanese writing about the emperor, um, that wasn't an accurate picture. I mean, no. you know, and 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 Hirohito had been involved in one way or another with a lot of these. He was. I'm thinking of Barry Hoda's book too on J- Japan, 1941, yeah. laying the groundwork. Right. Many ways, the the opposite size version of Threshold of War by Waldo. Yeah. Uh, in which you know she notes that Hirohito was actively involved. Yeah, in and and that's right, and and um, and he he approved the decision to sort of have this, you know, last climactic battle in the defense of Japan and particularly in Kyushu as a way of sort of inflicting such heavy casualties on the Americans that they might uh, be willing to negotiate a surrender. So he, he prolonged the war mm-hmm, during the summer of 1945. Um, and so in that sense, uh, Truman's instinct, I don't know that it was anything more than that was, um, I, I, you know, gave him a more a- accurate understanding than those people who wish to um, compromise. Uh, well, that brings us to the Gar Al Parabits question. Oh, I guess yeah. you know, was the bomb necessary then? Well, it 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 depends on sort of how what kind of victory mm-hmm. the Americans were looking for. It was necessary to compel something like Japan's unconditional surrender to open the way for an occupation if the American definition of victory was the transformation of Japan from this sort of semi-feudal state to a one uh, based on more democratic principles. Um, and, And if that was the goal, which Truman clung to. I mean, that's what he believed. He's probably the only one to cling to that. I would. Yeah. Think. Yeah. Well, I mean, there were there were a lot of people. You know, Dean Acheson supported okay. it, and and uh, sort of it really is is striking the extent to which this was a partisan issue and a kind of liberal conservative one. Mm-hmm. I mean, conservatives understandably didn't think that the United States had wherewithal to transform this very different society, which is the product of centuries of development. And, and they, you know, would say, well, you can't tinker with tradition like that. Okay. And, uh, you know, the more liberal side was saying, well, if we don't, if we don't rip, um, this kind of feudalistic culture out by the roots in Japan, we're only going to wind up fighting another war like we did with Germany. Mm-hmm. And therefore, um, for the peace of Asia, you need to, I mean, I liken it to reconstruction, for right. example, you know, you need to sort of go in and socially transform uh, the place. Mm-hmm. If that's your goal, then it's either invasion or the atomic bombs. Mm-hmm. If the concern was with just the immediate danger presented by Japan, then, you know, Japan didn't pose a threat. You could, at that point, you could negotiate with the Japanese and you wouldn't need 
to use the atomic bomb. But of course, nobody knows exactly what the Japanese were willing to accept. Right. In terms of, you know, this was the other fear. Once you start negotiating, then Americans' morale starts to, or at least their commitment to the war starts to wane. And you don't have a clear idea of what the Japanese are willing to agree to at that point. And one of the reasons for that is, I mean, it you know can't be emphasized enough. The Japanese never presented to the Americans anything that resembled a peace offer. And, and so to say that they were ready to surrender, I mean, is sort of a fantasy uh, because, uh, you know, you had to be clairvoyant. I mean, even though, of course, Americans were reading Japanese communications, they were reading uh, Japanese diplomatic traffic, but all that showed them was how adamant the Japanese were about making this last ditch stand, um, you know, in the home island. So, uh, so no, I, I don't agree with Gar Alperovitz and, and um, I, I think the atomic bombs were dropped to end the war. Right. Um, to end the war, period, not to save American lives or... Well, I mean, certainly, yeah, to, yeah. you know... I mean, that's, that's, that's the, you know, the ancillary effect of ending yeah, the war. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, the, the interesting thing is, is of course, with, you know, the, the sort of, Al, I guess, Alperovitz's thesis is in part, you know, this was done to sort of intimidate the, the Soviet Union the also. Theory, yeah, yeah. yeah and, and the people who were most worried about the Soviet Union, where people like Grew and Stimson, and they were saying, look, you know, why don't we negotiate with, let them keep the emperor? It'll have the, the um, I guess, the benefit of ending the war quickly, and the Russians won't get too far into Northeast Asia. I mean, I mean that was the Cold War position. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I think I point out that Charles Cook, the, the Navy's war planner, he said, you know, maybe it's not in our interest to defeat the Japanese too badly because we might need them. And this is yeah. in the spring of 45. We might need them as a counterweight against the, <laughs> uh, against the Russians. And, and so, you know, if you believe that, if you really were worried about the Russians, the, the thing to do would be to get a negotiated settlement with the Japanese as quickly as possible. Well, at this point in our interviews, uh, we post some final questions okay. to our guests. Um, first, what are you looking forward to on your next project? Um, writing a shorter book. <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, that's, uh, that's one objective, and I think I can, I can certainly probably do that. Yeah. Um, um, I, I'm looking forward to writing this, uh, as I said, returning to this project on unconditional surrender, uh, because it's to me, it it it, beca- it it gets labeled the policy after the war. Um, Hanson Baldwin, the New York Times mm-hmm. military writer, calls it one of the greatest mistakes of the war. And in fact, I think he even considers it the greatest mistake of the war. Um, and the politics of unconditional surrender, both in the summer of 1945, which I alluded to a little bit, the way this sort of people's ideas about um, unconditional surrender was closely linked to their sort of political mm-hmm. ideology. Um, I find really interesting and not something that's been 
developed very much by historians and and um, but then also the controversy that follows in the McCarthy era about what who supported unconditional unconditional surrender, what it meant, and the sort of the way this idea gets transformed and uh, becomes a political issue all the way up to the 1990s in the Smithsonian yeah. exhibit. So it, it's um, the sort of strange life of unconditional surrender is what I'm... And so it's, it's about military policy and diplomacy, but about uh, domestic politics and... Mm-hmm. Uh, cultural awareness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The second question, um, what are you reading and or watching that you might recommend to our listeners? Well, let's see. I just read a book, you know, talk about a uh, sort of busman's holiday um, called War in the Far East, Storm Clouds Over the Pacific uh, by Peter Harmson, uh, which is due out soon. Mm. Uh, and he was a journalist. He was for many years a journalist in China, and it's a, a a really good survey. It's meant to be the first of a three volume study of the, the Pacific War and War in Asia. But he he does a really good job of placing uh, Japan's war in China before Pearl Harbor in its international sort of global setting. Yeah, and uh, you know the guy is an experienced reporter and a, therefore sort of writes with I mean, very sort of taught prose and, and something I wish I could master. Myself. Yeah, yeah. We, we keep trying and, and, and uh, great use of detail. So I, that, I just, uh, just finished that. Oh, great. Okay. Yeah. Well, Mark, thanks for taking the time to talk with me today. Uh, really enjoyed our conversation. Oh, I enjoyed it too. And it was, uh, it was nice to catch up with you again. Nice to see you. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And to our listeners, on behalf of New Books in Military History, this is your host, Bob Wintermute. Thank you for listening.